Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! We may be empty-handed, but our hands aren't empty. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real, your movie-reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Happy 2020, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to the program. Thanks for keeping your listenership with the Playlist Podcast Network. You should listen to the discourse and the fourth wall and the other wonderful shows here. Like, rate, subscribe. Keep it And... Going. What? If your life has reached that moment of I need to do something else, apply for the Creative Writing MFA at California <laughs> College of the Arts, our faithful sponsor. Double shout out to CCA. I love it. Um, we're here because it's still a quiet time of year. I mean, Underwater is coming out. I but can't we've wait. Got, uh, we've got <laughs> Christmas releases and award season releases left to discuss. We're going to talk about Greta Gerwig's uh, Little Women, which is the latest in a long, long line of adaptations of Louisa May Alcott's novel. So we're going to go back to talk about the 94 one, and we're going to go back and talk about the 49 one as well. Noah. Yeah? What's your relationship to Little Women? Can I be honest with you, Chance? Yes. I would love that. it's, It's casual at best. Sure, that's fine. I'm not a person for whom this book is like a seminal childhood book or something. Right. It's been interesting to talk to people for whom it is. Um, and I certainly enjoyed this movie a lot more. Like the more adaptations I watched, the more I read about it. Um, there's a lot going on for people who know the source material and the legacy of its movies. Can you sum up, so maybe we can only do it one time, what Little Women is about? So we have... The titular Little Women living, it's these four sisters living in Concord, Massachusetts during Mm -hmm. the Civil War. And I I do want to talk about class, uh, this the overarching question of class here, but they're like lower middle class living in this house and the dad is gone to fight in the war and the mom is there trying to like keep everything together and keep it light while also like being a good person in her community too. And then various hijinks ensue based on the overarching desires uh, yielded from coming of age that these women have. Uh, I like that you describe love and marriage as hijinks. I feel like they kind of are, especially in the most recent one, like the marriages and death, and things following the art within one soul a hijink for you as well yeah that's it (laughs) so joe's the writer she's kind of the the leader of these four sisters um meg is the actress but sort of shy and in herself and waiting for something interesting to come along or some feeling to come along not necessarily money Mm -hmm. um and then we have Amy, who's like the brat, who is loves constantly money. loves money and is constantly like getting in the way of everybody else, specifically Joe, mm-hmm. uh, to traumatic ends. And Beth, who is the p- sort of quiet piano playing, chronically ill one. Right. Yeah. I think she's referred to, I think this is from the book, as like a, her mom looks at her like a cricket on the hearth. Like she's just, she's too like 
timid to go to school. She just like wants to be at home, which that sounds nice. Uh, except for the Scarlet Fever at all. Um, right. The Gerwig movie came out on Christmas. Saoirse Ronan is Joe. Emma Watson is Meg. Florence Pugh is Amy. And, uh, oh no, Eliza Scanlon is Beth. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just couldn't remember her name. Uh, Laura Dern is Marmy. Uh, the cast is just like off the chain. Um, yeah. So the other characters that they interact with too are key here. So you have Lori uh, or Teddy, depending on your level of familiarity. That's who's right. Who's the literal boy next door who tempts all of them at one point or another. Um, then there's the the t- his teacher John Brooke, who's also a factor, especially when he's Eric Stoltz. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then later on you how and then you have the aunt too who's like planning this european trip and it's like somewhat in question like who's gonna come with her and that's like one of the escape pods that these young women have at their disposal um and then in some of this versions you have mr lawrence like the owner of the house next door yeah Lori's the, grandpa but then in the 94 one, he's like almost totally absent. Right, right. Um, yeah, one of the things about Gerwig's, especially if, if you've watched other adaptations, is that it is the most comprehensive. Like one of the great things about it, and we'll talk in detail about how she pulls it off, but even if just reciting the characters, some of the people who you've seen like really fade to the back or be sort of like lame comedic relief in the other ones, like everyone is given something to do in Greta Gerwig's version. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sisters. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Ow, Joe! I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. We are avowed fans of Lady Bird. It's one of my favorite movies. You always, like, pull me into this, like, fan club that you have for Lady Bird. I think Lady Bird's a good movie, but, I mean, I don't think it was as game-changing as you do. But go ahead. I, it's a great movie. I don't think the game was changed, but I do think it's like one of my eight favorite movies of the last, you know, five years. So maybe that is like... Well, I don't share that opinion. Okay, that's fine. Then get out of my treehouse. Um, <laughs> so, but that movie was had such a authorial voice to it because it was about Greta Gerwig's childhood and coming of age. And I think one of the things I had to get over with this movie was an initial kind of coldness of like i'm waiting for that crystal clear hyper specific voice to come back and that's not what you're thrown into you're thrown into a classical story that's been interpreted with sort of shades of the same um you know whimsical and tragic and coming of age tones been told many times um so i kind of had to get past that and i have seen this movie twice um so you're saying you did not feel that authorial voice not the first time but i think it's because i didn't know what to look for because i think if you go back a second time you can really see that it's there's some quintessential greta gerwig choices going on here there was an interesting albeit somewhat problematic twitter thread today which is wednesday um about how this movie's not getting more accolades and more attention because of how quiet the authorial voice is and Mm. that from our auteur filmmakers, we look for that sort of like inner to one shot, like showmanship in this day and age, 1917, same thing. Uh, But I don't know if I agree with that premise because I think even – just like the slight political statements made in the adaptation of the book is auteurism at its finest. 
Right. Yeah, it's, I think it's just hard. It's harder to see. It takes more patience because nobody is, you know, flexing their fake one take in front of you. But that's... Um, and as far as that thread goes, like, I don't think these are inherently bifurcated feminine and masculine qualities. But um, I, for me, this one did take more energy to find the specificity in it. But it's there for sure. Because um, the main choice that Greta Gerwig makes is to bifold this story. Um, I think it's a genius move. So great. Tell me why you think it's genius. I think it's a genius move because if I can be honest off the bat, I don't think that the plot of Little Women is that interesting. And so I think in a linear fashion, it's you need to get around how like kind of clunky it is in the time between like them being girls and doing stuff to each other and burning each other's hair and going to dances and falling into the lake and the time where like the serious life choice shit happens it sags in the middle there. So if you like sandwich it on top of each other and show how this stuff is cyclical, I think it's a more int- the the contrast is more interesting than the events themselves. I would agree with that. I think the other thing it does and this is something I I'm kind of champing at the bit to talk about is it creates this kind of perfectly balanced third person vantage point where when you start with, you know, 22-year-old Joe scrapping in New York and then cut back to 15-year-old Joe putting on plays in Concord, you're never asked to be, like, in the eyes of a child and have that, like, myopic view. You're basically... The movie forces you to watch it like an adult. It forces you to be reflective and know what compromises are coming their way. Right. The other two feel like children's or family films. And this one, while it is rated PG and does star a lot of you know, sort of people transitioning from that YA space. Uh, Yeah, I don't think, I think it is an adult movie. And that's maybe what I found so intriguing about it is that it did require that work off the bat to be like, what is this story? Like, who are these people? And then what you have that pops up right away is that same super economical, really well-paced um, sneaky, brilliant editing that shows up in Ladybird with the passage of the time she again worked with Nick Huey to do the to do the editing, um, and it's she just makes a lot of really good choices about mirroring. And when I say it's bifolded, it is so precise because like you'll literally get them walking in opposite directions down the same street at different times where the movie perfectly meets up for the intersection of Beth recovering and then not recovering. Right. Um, it's a puzzle, uh, really well put together. Yeah, it's the uh, inception of Louisa May Alcott adaptations. Uh-huh. I think this one, too, has, I mean, you already said it, but the benefit of an absolutely fabulous cast. You just like Top want to bottom. And everybody's trying something, which is awesome, because a lot of these times, like with a cast this large, this is how I felt with Knives Out, is that like the cast was too big, so nobody had the space to do anything. And all of these movies, like even if they only have one scene, all of these people are trying something. And I really feel like in most cases, it works. Yeah. What do you want to single out? Who's trying the most interesting things? I think Chris Cooper gives a really intriguing performance as this like fundamentally shattered old man who has never recovered from the death of his daughter. So much so that he like can't go into buildings sometimes unless like someone holds his hand. And there's like something mm-hmm. sweet about that. And it almost, I think, is a political commentary on like just how this class of like men who were safe to be around has kind of died. And cause like in so many circumstances, like men could take advantage of women in this movie. And sometimes they do, but this guy's just a, he's just got a heart of gold. He's just like a, like a broken Santa Claus. And there's something interesting about that. That's true. I think that's consistent though, through all of them and the book. He's just a nice old man. Where do but you think, nice the, when do you think the bad age. men started world war one? <laughs> It seems the lost generation there really ah. brought it the... No, some of these guys are bad. Uh, like Tracy Letts is bad. I would argue Timothy Chalamet is pretty problematic. Uh, you mean the Laurie character? The Laurie character, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the most earnest portrayal maybe of the Laurie character, but when we get to Bale territory, it's 
It's pretty creepy. Bale's a little ominous. Um, before <laughs> before we just talk about like man in a Twitter way, let's talk about uh, what Florence Pugh is doing. Um, by far the most interesting use of Amy in any of the movies, and actually is Gerwig uh, adding scenes and cinching up this character and her transformation and her relationship with Laurie so it actually makes sense. So what happens in Little Women, if you don't know, is that Amy is the youngest and uh, has some, you know, knockdown drag out fights with Joe as a kid where she falls in the ice and burns Joe's novel. Um, and then eventually... And be, what a the dick one who, move that is. Such a dick move. She eventually ends up being the one who goes to Europe with Aunt March and marries Laurie, which objectively seems like a huge betrayal because Joe and Laurie, you know, uh, are seemingly on this path of, you know, besties, which could turn intimate at any time, depending which one yeah. of them you talk to. What's interesting about that moment, too, is that I would argue all three of these movies have Joe's reaction to the wedding, to the marriage of Lori and Amy. They play them in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's like very, very taken aback. Quite, yes. As you would be, right? As you would be, yeah. If my... Uh, my a person I had history with ended up marrying my much younger brother. Right. Uh, it'd be pretty weird. I'd be it taking be, it back. Yeah. You, if you were a movie character, you would want more than say 10 seconds to be like, Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> it would, yeah. you'd want some scenes added for Nate in Europe. So it made some sense. Right. I'm not gonna, um, I'm not going to give the, the June Allison version of my right. reaction. <laughs> So Gerwig does a great job of helping that along, but also Florence Pugh is tremendous because she's she is so there's so many more layers to her than just kind of petulant and ambitious. Like she's very funny as a little kid. She's really the probably the funniest person in the movie when they're little kids, um, and she's sort of like covetous of Laurie. Like there's that great quick cut where he comes over for the first time after Meg has sprained her ankle at the ball. And it's just Amy's face fills the frame for a split second. She goes, I'm Amy. And you're like, it's really almost subliminally teeing up this turn. Um, But what could easily be misconstrued as sort of adolescent greed quickly becomes like worldly cunning as she you know, starts to paint, realizes that's not what she's going to do, actually develops a real relationship with Aunt Marge, which is something that none of the other movies have. It's, there's a lot going on. Yeah. No, it's really interesting and really well done, well acted. Um, And it seems like a lot of people really, like a lot of younger siblings really understand this character, at least people I've talked to that have seen this movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like big younger sibling energy about the... The Pew performance. She's got that great bit too where she shows up uh, outside the window when Laurie and Burke are tutoring. Um, and she's like, cause she's, you know, corporal punishment, like had her hand cut open by this teacher for drawing. But Florence Pugh is just like out of breath going, I'm so sorry and I have beautiful feet, the best feet, the smallest in my family, but I can never go home because I'm in such trouble. It's <laughs> so funnily delivered. And then it immediately cut to her like being like, tell my servants to buy these paintings. She's very funny. I did like her, her cartoon though of the, the goofy teacher. It was quite accurate. But that's what I mean. The, this performance is really good because Florence Pugh is really good, but also Gerwig has positioned us perfectly to feel close to these characters and like we we can be affectionate for their like youthful energy and their beauty and how much they want from the world. But we also know that they are going to make mistakes, both because the movie is cut that way and because we are adults watching a movie about kids. Um, and so that allows people like Florence Pugh and Saoirse Ronan and everyone to give more knowing performances, not like ironic performances, but they can be very funny and they can be very emotional because like there's an inherent reflectiveness going on from audience to actor. Let me ask you this though. Um, This is what I'll call the uh, Kirsten Dunst paradox. Okay. Is that, do you believe, though, that in the flashback scenes, Florence Pugh is 
10, 11 years old. I think she's supposed to be like 14. No, and the she's supposed to be much younger. That's why they double cast that role in the 94 version because it's 7 years later and she's going to be she's got to be like 17, 18. And then so 7 years earlier she'd be like 10, 11. Okay, well she's not 11, but I bought her for 14, I guess. It's interesting that this movie chose not to spend too much time worrying about that. Right. Which I think is smart because I think it's one of the flaws of the 94 Little Women, just because Kirsten Dunst gives such a great performance and then is replaced with an actor who's not anything like her. Right. And that's <laughs> and is replaced at the exact moment you're having trouble suspending your disbelief that she's marrying right. Laurie. So it's weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they did their best with the with the age thing. Um, let's. Who do you want to talk about next? Emma Watson. What do you think? I think, and Lucy also brought this up after that. Emma Watson, outside of Hermione, is not a very good actor, and that maybe this showed a little bit of range. It's an easy role for someone to play acting person. <laughs> uh, shy acting person but i thought this is the best thing i've seen her in post hp i'm kind of surprised she took the role because it kind of feels like admitting i'm you're not, not as Joe interesting yeah. as sir Ronan or florence Pugh because i took the meg part hey and you have to admire the self-awareness and dignity of a, a move like that yeah I think she's fine. I think, and because that's the Meg turn, right? Is having to tell Joe, like, I actually want to live in a cottage with John Burke. Like, not everyone wants Kinda. to go rule New York. This yeah, movie, that's true. This movie, unlike the other two, has this, what I think a really interesting acting turn slash character turn when Meg kind of admits that she wishes she had more money. And there's this kind of, like the parents are fighting over money scene right which is pretty good and i think it gives this movie a little bit more that's what because i think when this movie really interrogates class it's kind of interesting because Definitely. on one hand you know they have enough money that they can have a live-in maid and that they have like food like freshly cooked food every morning and they have firewood and they're not you know they're not destitute and they have enough to do charitable giving and still eat themselves. And they live in the same neighborhood as a very wealthy person. But yet they are portrayed as like not having any. So I guess that, yeah, like I said at the top, they're lower middle class. But it is the the, the class war in there is sort of funny. The idea of like, oh, if you want to like not do all this bullshit day to day. You should marry someone really wealthy. Otherwise, you're going to have to, like, you know, shovel your own coals and, like, make dough every day. I think there's a couple things going on there. I agree with you. Gerwig herself has said that she was attracted to uh, adapting the movie this way because of the questions of money. Um, and there's a lot in the movie about the economic propositions of writing the book Little Women and of marriage and of don't judge me for my marriage because at this time it absolutely is an economic proposition because what other options do I have, says the Amy character, says the Meg character. Um, but then, yeah, I think you have, the, it's a really specific read on the family too that I find so interesting because in some ways they are like an idyllic family and I love the way this movie kind of undercuts that is it i think it's it's a tolstoy quote the all happy families are the same but the sad like the dysfunctional ones are interesting i don't think that's true this would be very very happy family you can just see how hard it is to live with the specific challenges that america presents she has two parents who are total idealists one of whom is a pastor fighting for abolition in the Civil War, the other of whom is a mom who's like, we should give our breakfast to these starving German immigrants being picked off one by one by scarlet fever, and you still see it trickle down through the four daughters how difficult it is to have hope and have idealism when everything else is pushing down. I mean, they're the middle-class ideal. You, like, contribute to the poor, but then you, and then you rise to, quote-unquote, success either through long shot achievement or through marrying well. I yeah. mean, that's basically always been how you rise in this country. But I think this is such a quintessentially American story in that like nobody's talking about, 
you know, what this live-in maid's going to do, you know, down the road if they can't afford her. And, like, it's not like the German lady who has all these kids. It's not like she's going to write a book. Right. You know, she's still at her station and being taken care of by this this trickle-down economy here. One of the other things that Gerwig makes sure to put in there is that Beth, who is the least developed and the most angelic character, like, the movie has to kind of accept that because we can't just do... 45 minutes on Beth. She's the least interesting person. But when Marmee leaves to go to DC to tend to injured pops, she's the one who upholds the family mantle of true altruism and it gets her sick while the rest of them are focused on their own thing, being like, oh, we'll get over there eventually, Beth. Don't worry about it. Um, It's so interesting. It is very interesting. And I think this one too has the best sequence of her receiving from... uh, Mr. Lawrence, the piano. Yeah. And just how, like, of a moment it is when they're all, like, fawning over it and she just, like, walks out the door and crosses the street in the snow just to fucking thank him, which is right. great. It is. It's, and it's, then it's, she, she hugs that big broken Santa Claus and... He tells her, you have a fever of 150. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you're dead. You're a dying person. <laughs> no, that was when I first got a little teary, though. It's just her, her walk. Oh. Yes. Give Chris Cooper a hug. Absolutely. What do you think about Timothy Chalamet? I think he's wonderful in the movie. And I think this is by far the best portrayal of Laurie. And I, I know, kind of know what you're saying earlier because uh, Sarah, my fiance. Um, when my she fiance. Got... <laughs> your wife, if not, if in practice, if not yet by law. <laughs> Billy Zane, Titanic, listen to the show. Um <laughs> She said after seeing this movie, she's like, I liked him, but I had this weird moment where it's like, he could have had sex with any one of those daughters. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think that's sort of a crass way like to look a moment at it. Where, he has a moment where he like corners each of them individually and like tests the water. I don't know about corners. He um, corners Emma Watson at the party where he like negs her for 10 minutes until she's weeping and has to leave. Then he, of course, has his one with Joe. Maybe he doesn't corner the sick one out of the goodness of his heart. He doesn't. He doesn't, doesn't proposition see. dying Beth. Right. Oh, man. Oh, my God. But the point is that you need to feel like the Laurie character and his grandfather are attracted to this family, that there is a true magnetism, a, you know, a, an ember of love at the core of like the March clan that draws people to them. And Chalamet just being a little like, y- honestly, like younger and smaller and like a little more feminine. He, he fits in like the scenes where he's acting with the girls, like they make so much more sense. Um, that he has an intimacy with everyone that, yes, dialed over a little bit, turns into like, well, could I marry Amy today? Um, but it's, I think it's really key. And I also just love his body language in the movie. Um, he sort of, the way he kind of hunches and the way he dances and the way he like lounges on things is all very thumbing his nose at like how men are supposed to stand. When they're in the painting studio and he's just like lounging on that chair, he's like, do my portrait. Right. <laughs> Paint me like one of your French girls. Yes, absolutely. I love it when he first encounters, oh, he encounters um, Amy in the, or no, he, yeah, he encounters Amy in the, the hotel and he like spills his sort of, dramatically spills his drink or whatever. And he's like, my bad, Fred Vaughn. It like wanders <laughs> off. But I want to draw this back because let's talk draw about it back, this. Baby. Let's talk about the scene where Joe turns him down. The famous scene that we have in all of these movies. Chalamet is able to play that scene with a kind of knowing desperation of like, this isn't going to go well, but I have to say it. Because you, the audience, know know it doesn't go well. And it's such an interesting note for him to hit where he's like, he's so passionate but also resigned at the same time and i love the fucking staging of that scene and that sort of like vespertine hillside that they're on nice which is so like the other movies like where does it happen like on a by a pond like really boring places and here we have like their whole lives are in front of them in front of this landscape and yet the sun is setting on this time in their lives as they've gotten kind of like you know wind up at meg's wedding and he like lays it out and he's so 
he's so sad. And but the the chemistry, obviously, between Saoirse and Chalamet is amazing. Yeah, for sure. They have great, but it's an interesting like non-romantic chemistry. It's really just like sparring partners. And so right. ultimately, like the him marrying Amy isn't that nuts and isn't icky. The same thing is it true in Ladybird? Like when things get sexual, like things get weird. But when they're just talking, it's fireworks. Yeah, and I think that the one of the, I mean, the, you're talking about a very like climactic scene where he confesses his love. But I think the more interesting scene is the one where they're in the attic and he's like, "Hey, can I like just talk to you for a sec before everybody's around us?" and explains that he is married. And that right. he just like wants to be friends. And that's because of the the surprise there. Seeing her react to what he's saying is is pretty pretty cutting. I also just love that Sersha just hits him so many times. Like really hard. <laughs> Which is again, like just an instantaneous small way of building out like these two have a relationship. Um that is full of these like little rebukes. Cause that's one of, one of the things in this story is like, he can't confess his love to her 20 times. Like it is building up to this one point, but like every time he reaches out to hold her hand in the snow after a play and she fucking gives him a Charlie horse on his upper arm, like you're building it. That's good. Yeah. I think we have to probably move on. Um, Christopher Columbus. We need to move on. <laughs> Don't say Christopher Columbus. Uh, oh wait, our sponsor wants us to talk about the casting of Professor Bear. Oh, we probably have to talk about the end of the movie. Let's talk about the end of the movie and move on. So Professor Bear, played here by Louis Garrel, um, who you might know from Bertolucci's The Dreamers, um, he that's the character that Joe falls for in New York. But if you the don't, the one that tells her that her work is shitty and then ultimately <laughs> marries her. Yeah. Um, Hey, at least he's not 20 years older than her in this particular one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's from the book, and it's not easy to watch when you actually have actors with a 25-year age difference. But let's talk about this. the How she handles the end of this movie, which is like notoriously disliked by the true little women heads. And she yeah. kind of folds it in with the editor Tracy Letts' request that women, people don't want to see women be consistent. They want to see them married. Yeah, I think that's that's such a smart way to get around it because the movie almost admits that we have to give you a movie ending here, but that's not the actual ending. It's not Louisa May Alcott's life. But then she knocks the the actual ending out of the park. Right. Because it's well, I mean, it is a well done romantic umbrella in the rain moment that is filmic and iconic and makes you feel warm. But it's also like heightened just enough. Like I was really paying attention for like where the foot got put on the gas when I watched it the second time. Um, and it's, he tells her, and Louis Garrel is very like tender and I like him in this movie. Um, he's like, oh, please come visit me in California if you ever do come out. And she's like, I probably won't. We'll see ya. <laughs> and then we, <laughs> which is like the last bit of stark honesty. And then we cut to Tracy Letts being like, I want to publish your book. Here are the things that have to change. And all of a sudden we cut back and the movie has this sort of ecstatic energy where Amy's like, you love him. And Joe's like, I do. And she's like, yes, what is love? And you get this, it's so, f you're right. It's like iconic and warm hearted, but it's like just artificial enough that right. you like realize the commentary. It's a fantasy and it's also a fantasy. You can tell it's a fantasy too because of how jealous and overt Timothy Chalamet's Laurie's being. Who He's is like, this Are you man? sure? Who is this man? <laughs> so, I don't know if I want you to be this man is. <laughs> so yeah, I think that that and then the heightened sort of I don't know if I like that when she goes after him like almost feels like a product of her imagination, not the actual story that's unfolding. It's the it's the novel she's written. She hasn't written a memoir, keep in mind. She's written a novel. Right. And it's more it's actually it's so much more thoughtful than being like it's 2020 fuck this i'm ending it my own way because gerwig has invested so much in pointing out the gray areas and the pigeonholes and the difficulty of being a woman trying to make a life at this time to then move that read over to artists 
and like what sells and how to make a life in that sense. Like she's really folded it all together as opposed to just cutting the opposite way. It's almost a commentary too now, especially with the backlash from like awards stuff with this movie. It's almost a commentary on the kinds of movies Greta Gerwig would need to make in order to like continue working as a director in Hollywood. hundred percent. I agree with that. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. So on the, since it's a new year, 2020, we may, we rate movies on this show using two gradients. There's a first good about technical quality. We say good or bad. There's a second one about watchability, entertainment value, personal attachment. That's a good or bad as well. I think that Little Women is an unquestionable good good. I liked it so much more the second time I saw it. It shot up into my like the like number six of 2019. Like I really like this movie a lot. Um, it just took me a minute because I didn't know the source material and I didn't really I didn't understand what Greta Gerwig was up against until I watched some of the other movies. Right. I would agree with you. I think it's a good good. And again, yeah, it's definitely like one of my favorite movies made in 2019 or released in 2019. Uh, really, really strong, really warm. The acting's incredible, especially. And yeah, I think the just the filmmaking, just to see how you make a historical movie too with not a ton of money if you're spending most of your money on people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like some, there's some clever like New York editing. It's like, oh, she's in New York, but you realize like the the frame is so small, or we're moving in fast motion with like people walking by to synthesize a crowd, but so you don't need like a thousand extras in a fake Times Square or something. Right. Right. I thought that was really clever, and I gotta say too, I think what really stuck with me on this one is the score. Alexander Desplat. Yeah, it's a, it's really haunting and it plays with these sort of like minor notes in a fun like almost sort of painful way that i've been listening i've listened to it three or four times now uh and it's like this is a a movie about family sure and a movie about sisters and women but also it's like a movie about pain and how one deals with the trauma of life uh and i think the score really like gets that across i'm with you also a beautiful use of the Beethoven's, I love it when, I know you love it when I try to pronounce French things, uh, Pathétique Sonata, the the one that Beth plays and then the professor plays at the end, which again is just a clever economical way of being like, I can't like give Professor Bear a speech because I don't have time for that and I'm not going to write him a speech, but he can play this gorgeous song that means so much to everyone and it, you know, turn on the waterworks. Okay, so 94 Little Women is directed by Gillian Armstrong, an Australian filmmaker, best known for, uh, she made My Brilliant Career in 1979 and several like early Kate Blanchett films, but Little Women, unquestionably, her biggest hit. Uh, like I said, I had seen this before. You've got Winona Ryder as Joe. You've got Kirsten Dunst as Baby Amy. You've got Claire Danes as Beth. You've got Trini Alvarado as Meg, Susan Sarandon as the mom, Christian Bale as Laurie. What were our impressions of this one? This one's like the snoozier Disney version of this story. Uh, the, it's a pretty traditional f- like filmmaking film. And unlike the Gerwig one, like the whole thing is just in chronological order, which, as I said on the top, I think is maybe the worst way to tell this story that like maybe was exciting in the 19th century, but like is a 19th century boring social like sometimes people die very slowly plot but that being said i think that it all hangs i mean much like the first one we talked about in the performances and the relationships between not only these characters but how these actors can like figure out the problem of aging seven years over the course of 50 scenes or whatever yeah, I feel like the the mission statement for this movie was probably largely the same as Greta's, which was to 
make it more modern, even though it's distinctly a stately period piece, but also go deeper with the characters. Like compared to the 49 version, it's like the 49 version, we'll talk about it, but it's like, do these people even know each other? <laughs> like right. what? what is going on? And you, so you do have a greater intimacy. You do have um, things feel more personal. Gillian Armstrong is working hard to make it feel like there's a real kinship here. Um you have a closeness between Laurie and Amy. You ju- but yeah, like you said, it's still that front-to-back epic. And I don't know if you called it clunky necessarily, but yeah, the, the way the events play out is kind of like either huge problem that's resolved real fast or like all of a sudden they're mad old. The, the thing of best... <laughs> get- Actually, you know what the, what's so great about the... The Gerwig version is like, it's just weird for Beth to get sick twice. You're just like, again? What? <laughs> we just did this. Right. And in the Gerwig version, she effectively gets sick once because it's the focal point of the timelines coming together. What do those girls do over there all day? Over the mysteries of female life, there is drawn a veil, best left undisturbed. Hark ye, revenge is mine, quoth he. You ought to publish it, Joe, really. Columbia Pictures invites you to share the holidays with a family of little women. Joe. If I were going to be a writer, I'd go to New York and pursue the stage. Are you shocked? Very. Meg. What's that strange smell? Beth. What's your Christmas wish? Perhaps we could send the Hummels our bread. They have so little and we have so much. Amy. I've waited my whole life to be kissed. And what if I miss it? I promise to kiss you before you die. I also think this movie has the problem of all of the male characters being miscast. Okay. Let's go. I think Gabriel Byrne is such a creepy motherfucker, like just in general. And then B, especially when cast against like an early 20 something Winona Ryder at like, he's got to be in his 40s. I looked it up. He's like 44 and she's 22. It's so weird. He plays the guy who criticizes her work, but instead of being like a hot French guy who's like maybe 10 years older than her, he's a creepy German guy who's 20 years (laughs) older than her. Germany will age you, baby. It just sucks the the potential romance, even if it is unfulfilled, out of the out of the last third of this movie. Yeah, well also it's like he did it for her, right? Like, I gave it to my editor friend as opposed to she's facing down the Tracy Letts character. Right. There is no agency to her getting published. It's just a continuation of this guy's obsession with this much younger woman. Yep. I... And then Christian Bale. Oh, right. Christian Bale and Eric Stoltz, but Christian Bale is so like Pat Bateman in this movie that it's like so weird and it's like in this scene where he kisses her abruptly is he also going to like remove her head oh, is that like where we're going here i think that he is good i'm not in... doing my father's banking anymore okay. instead i'm gallivanting <laughs> around europe do you like beethoven's pathetic sonata <laughs> Do you like this Thomas Newman score? Does it sound too much like Shawshank Redemption? <laughs> oh, no. What? We could do this all day. The His beard alone is one of the worst uh, facial hairs in cinema history. I think he is good in the younger parts. Like, he gives some looks. He gives a lot of, like stolen looks to Joe that make the relationship seem kind of like real and you know what he feels for her. And I think even his proposal, which is inching up to the line of Bale being too intense, is actually, it's pretty well acted. And for me, at least, it was kind of convincing for a second because you're like, oh, wait, does she actually want this? Because like he is really pouring it on. And then the camera cuts to Winona and it's like, oh, shit, no, he's this is not going to happen. We're... 
compared to Chalamet, who knew the whole time that Laurie knew the whole time it wasn't going to work. Um, but yeah, once he gets old, it gets it's too weird. The thing you tell. I don't agree with the thing about Laurie necessarily cornering people in the other one, but in this one, he just has the one bullet in the chamber from when Amy was a little girl about kissing her before she died and just walks up and he's like, I'm going to fire this one bullet to try to hook up with you. Yeah. That doesn't quite land. Um, And then the Eric Stoltz, like Eric Stoltz is also like has a creepiness to him. Like I think he's, perfectly cast as the college professor who hooks up with the students from rules of attraction. And he feels the same here too. Well, Stoltz is the same. It's the same problem Winona has, which is, I think they can both be very good actors, but they are quintessentially modern actors. They became famous in nineties, independent cinema. They are both people who irony is part of their blood and to ask either of them to go full earnest like oh my meg you're so beautiful or oh meg you should never marry neither of them can succeed with that yeah that full-blown like whimsy it just comes you off you never as go full idealism you never don't go full idealism because it seems creepy it's so creepy the two of them are creepy winona Ryder's pretty creepy because she's like frankly famous for being kind of creepy well the the she's good in the burt movies and she's good in reality bites creepy movies yeah well they're not creepy necessarily but like you don't think all tim burton movies are a little creepy okay they're a little creepy um but yeah her her best moment in the movie is where she flips the fuck out at amy and she's just like i'll kill you you're nothing which is like that's the <laughs> winona Ryder that we know and maybe love yeah, of- that's the uh, girl interrupted Winona Ryder. Right. <laughs> um, I think Susan Sarandon is really good. I think uh, she has a kindness to her that is inherent, but also sharper than Laura Dern that makes it work when she's like, you know, you see her teaching the girls that like, we're not going to fucking put up with this professor who hit Amy. I think she's really good. We talked about how Kirsten Dunst is really good. Claire Danes is not... <laughs> Her, whoever did her makeup, though, I hope they won the Oscar because at one point she absolutely looks like a corpse. Yeah. And she's just like, she's speaking, but she just looks like a collection of dead things. The close-up of her like slurping soup. She's like, oh, thank you. She's so chapped. Lucy and I both put on uh, Bert's bees at the same moment when that scene happened. It was aggressive. That's hilarious. It was, yeah, you could feel it. It was tangible. Um. Yeah, I mean, Trini Alvarado, I think, is soft and kind of forgettable as Meg, which is sort of what you want. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Some t- it, has that, it has that time jump problem where you come back and Winona's like, Trini, I haven't seen you in like 45 minutes of this movie. And Trini's like, oh, I kind of remember you. <laughs> right. Um, and this yeah. movie also could do without some of the just sort of like blaring strings swooning oh i like like the newman score (laughs) the newman score like does a lot of work here in scenes that don't need to be 30 seconds of winona Ryder like running to and then leaning on a fence sure i Um, think there's like a lot of flourishes like that in this movie that gerwig economically and smartly dispatched with uh, early on i think the performances individually are very like easy to pick apart in this one um, I think the whole, especially compared to the one that we're about to talk about, is nice. There, like, is a general kind of well-handled epic warmth about it. Um, it's just, it's choices about, like, what are cinematic, like you said. Like, sometimes it's, like, well done and very old school of, like, yes, we'll watch Joe walk up the entire snowy street. But then, like, again, just compare the, like, when she decides to write the novel, Gerwig emphasizes everything that is tactile and every stage of novel writing and what it means. Yeah. And Gillian Armstrong is like, she's going to look through Beth's stuff and go and sigh and be inspired, which is just an inherently kind of easy, uncinematic way to do that. I didn't mind this movie, but like our comparisons are not making it easy. Um, yeah. Good, bad. I think as far as little women movies go, this is a good bad. Yeah. But I don't think this is that good of a good bad. 
I think that it's destined to just be bowled over and erased by this new one. It's it's been interesting to go back and like look at like really positive reviews of when this movie came out. Um, this movie's just not that cool, and I think that's not like cool. the new one's so cool. I mean, notably, and I forgot to mention this when we talked about it for forty five minutes earlier. Uh, the scene of them physically making the book is like one of the coolest sequences of the movie. Oh, it's so good. And it really just shows just like how difficult it is to make a book. I mean, they don't make books very differently now. I mean, other than it's like digitally printed on the paper, but in terms of the actual binding, than they did 150, 200 years ago. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see that process and how far she's come in telling her story and then just seeing it like fucking sealed yes oh my gosh right it's both interesting to look at and thematically perfect right it's like watching the mandalorian get a new goddamn shield or whatever (laughs) and on that note let's talk about 1949 little women okay so this one i mean i don't know if i need to do a full mea culpa we maybe should have done the 33 one so, because the the story of the forty nine one starts in thirty three, which the thirty three one is directed by George Cukor, who did Philadelphia Story and My Fair Lady, and stars Catherine Hepburn, who has got to be the joeyest Joe there ever was. Like Catherine Hepburn's career was defined by playing uh, independent women who talked the, talked the socks off men, um, and the from what I can ascertain, the forty nine version is a basically identical script, some of the same music, and is maybe like a slightly studio cash grabby, like, we have color films now. We got to do that one people liked in color. <laughs> um, I mean, that's what they did with when they invented sound. So Right. Yeah, I mean, because there's like a couple different silent versions of the movie. Um, but yeah, 49 is directed by Mervyn Leroy, who uh, was like an MGM guy in his prime years and was actually like the head of production for MGM for a while who discovered Clark Gable and made somewhere north of 70 feature films. Um, wow. I think he made three movies the year he made little women. So if there's part of the movie that feels sort of like a little cardboard and rushed, it's because he was like one of the, you know, uh, most oiled cogs in a machine that just churned out movies. Yeah. Including this one. Yeah. Um, if the- if the backs of any of the sets looked a little like East Side, West Side. Uh, right. Because they were. Speaking yeah. of East Side, West Side, it sounds like a great movie. What's, sorry, what's East Side, West Side? That was the movie that Mervyn Leroy was making at the same time he was making. Oh. <laughs> Starring Barbara Stanwyck and James Mason. James Mason. A vain... <laughs> A vain businessman puts strains on his happy marriage to a rich, beautiful socialite by allowing himself to be seduced by a former girlfriend. <laughs> so you got June Allison uh, plays Joe. You've got Liz Taylor as Amy. You have Janet Lee as Meg. And you have uh, Margaret O'Brien uh, playing Beth, who is here portrayed as much younger than the other ones. She's like 12. She is a little child. Um, the only other person I really recognized, well, did you talk about Elizabeth Taylor? Mm-hmm. Was uh, Peter Lawford, who's in The Longest Day, as a much older person. Yeah, he's like a Rat Pack dude. Yeah. Yeah, he plays Laurie. Um, let me open with a couple good things, because like, otherwise I don't have that much nice to say about this movie. I think that in a very old school stardom way... Elizabeth Taylor does bring sort of like the attraction and distrust that is incumbent within the Amy character. Um, She does a good job of both like playing dumb and smart at the same time, which is another important part of Amy's growth. Uh, I think it's a very funny bit when she's like doing working on Joe's play at the beginning. And she says that uh, she's upset that her character doesn't know the twists of the story. She's like, why don't I ever get to play anyone who knows anything? (laughs) Like she suffered or she doesn't want to play a character upon whom the dramatic irony is operating so hard. Uh, (laughs) And she's good when she, when the, you know, Joe cuts her hair off and she goes, Oh, it's uh strangely becoming <laughs> i think liz taylor is pretty good at age she is 17 years old in this joe 
hair. Joe. Your beautiful hair. Oh, my Joe. Oh, Joe. Your beautiful hair. You sold it. Oh, well, it doesn't affect the fate of the nation, so don't wear that. Christopher Columbus. What have you done to yourself? You look like a porcupine. Really? I feel deliciously light and cool. I really like the line where Elizabeth Taylor, when she gets caught uh, having drawn the cartoon, uh, the teacher's like, did you draw this, Meg? Or did you draw this, Amy? And she goes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as if there's there is still a shadow of a doubt like maybe someone will step in at the last minute and say they right. did it That's i funny. think so uh, for now uh, let's say yes <laughs> and you know who else i like is uh i kind of like rossano brazi the italian actor in his first ever english language film as professor bear he's kind of he's sort of like winning but also bizarre um he always he calls joe like my little friend i love your writing oh, yeah <laughs> He has his, like, these very, like, casual nicknames for her. It's very right. funny. But he's got a good scene on the piano. I think he plays a German song called None But the Lonely Heart, which is, is nice sounding. I really was impressed by the background painting. I mean, it was clearly painted background, Concord, Massachusetts, and in a studio somewhere in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. But, like, the old school production design of this one was just first class. It looks nice. I mean, that's, yeah, watch watch a Western from this era, too, that's not like a true John Ford um, landscape thing. And, yeah, it's it's studio shit. Like, you kind of got to get used to that. The thing that doesn't, the stuff that doesn't make sense that I don't enjoy is where Gerwig, again, to kind of hold her up as the juxtaposition, she looks at the difficulty of marriage and women having their own money and dreams at this time and in it sees all these miniature conflicts, this movie sees there is an obstruction of drama between like how little men and women can talk to each other, which I, it just doesn't have any clever workarounds for. So the fundamental problem with this movie is that Laurie and Joe don't have a relationship. Uh, right. And so they have their throwdown scenes, and they're not hooked into anything. Right. And also, I just, I don't know that June Allison quite pulls off Joe as it's written in the text. Like, it, it's almost like she plays everything horrible that happens to her as, like, the best thing she could have hoped for. You know, like, at the end where it's like, oh, the your sister married the love of your life. She's like, I'm so happy that that worked out the way I oh, always knew Amy, it would. So happy for your marriage. Um, she's just doing Catherine Hepburn. But she doesn't right. have that Catherine Hepburn thing of, like... It's a little bit of a presentational theatrical bit, which makes sense for the Joe character. Um, right. But June is just like pumping it out there. <laughs> yeah, Joe needs to be sort of wise beyond her years. And you just don't feel that with the June Allison performance. All June Allison has is the years. She's way too old. She is 32 in this movie. That's um, incredible. Which, yeah, she is just looks like an adult woman when joe is supposed to be like 15 it does not work 32 <laughs> yeah that's incredible um, yeah the other thing i don't think about this movie and i mean it may feel like an easy pot shot at 1949 and and uh mervyn leroy but i don't think this movie comprehends or appreciates the ambitions of the little women enough to make a good little woman adaptation. <laughs> that was what I was saying to Lucy last night after we watched this or after I watched it sort of alone. Um, <laughs> was that for such a, like a, a formative feminist text as little women, like this movie is not feminist. <laughs> no. Like the little women seem to be more or less the inconvenience to all the other characters. A hundred percent. Um, Peter Lawford, who, like, you need Laurie to understand Joe's creativity. He goes, he literally says, Joe, I don't understand you. Being a writer and for almost no money. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's like her dreams are, yeah, getting in the way of a marriage proposal that we as the audience should definitely want. 
I think that another kind of like goofy thing about this one is it made me think about just how far like the body language of act the average actor has come. <laughs> like oh we God. talked about Chalamet's physicality. Peter Lawford in scene after scene is just standing stock straight in the middle of rooms. Like, uh, <laughs> like where is he supposed to go? Or like, where am I supposed to fit in here? He doesn't have any, like his body language doesn't say anything about the character other than like, I, I am here and I expect to marry. <laughs> Yeah, that's what's funny about movies like these is because they're made to see, they're like small spaces made to seem like big spaces, but then like nobody can go anywhere. (laughs) And like they're all like so uptight because it's 1949 that they like won't dare put their leg up on a seat or something. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting how a lot of this movie is people just standing or sitting, speaking sort of to each other, but mostly to the camera. Right. Uh. And I mean, this is just teasing the the era a little bit, but like the that body language is not helped by the fact that everything is a middle shot. Like I watched oh, yeah. the the ninety four one right after this, and like you know the camera pans in across Winona's face, and you see the flash in her eyes as she like thinks about writing. And I was like, oh yeah, I just watched a movie with zero close ups. <laughs> it really doesn't have any. You didn't see how chapped anyone's lips were. How would you no. know that they're gonna die? Do any of them even slurp soup? Did you feel like this one kind of like coughed and then Beth was dead and then the movie moved on? Um, She definitely has her speech. Margaret O'Brien has a kind of impressive speech. Sure. Um, but, but the movie yeah, doesn't seem mean. to like change in tone after she's gone. Like the way the other two sort of no. fundamentally must. <laughs> yeah, the lighting in the house changes. Um, that doesn't quite quite happen here. Yeah. I mean, well, it's because nothing can dampen June Allison's spirits. Like, nothing is different. <laughs> this is uh, Beth dying is absolutely the first thing that she ever thought was possible and could happen. I love the theater. She's... I'll tell you about my dead sister sometime if you take me to the theater once again. <laughs> oh, Poor June. Beth. Poor dead Beth. Poor um, dead Beth. Did you, before we rate this movie and wrap up, which Little Women character are you, Noah? I think I'm clearly Amy. Yeah, 100% you are. Sarah kept saying I was Joe. I kept joking. <laughs> I kept joking I was Beth because I would just be nice and then be dead. But I that's think that's interesting. I think you're more of a Meg. Oh, that's probably right. I think if your only <sighs> choice was one of the four titular I little women, I wish I was angelic and dead, though. Yeah. Meg's like kind of mediocre, if I'm being honest. I know. I didn't mean it as insulting. I no, certainly I meant it's... my self-identification as Amy as insulting. Oh, in knowing that you were Amy, I absolutely am recognizing the negative parts of that. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, just out of respect for old movies, I'll give it a good bad. You're not going to yeah. do that? No, I think it's bad bad. I just don't. I'll give it a, I'll give it a good bad. That's I'll give cool. it a charitable good bad. Uh, it just doesn't have any like very artful ideas, which in kind of testing my own, you know, my movie education back there does get limited. I'm at, at fault, but like there are plenty of groundbreaking, interesting artistic movies from the forties. This is just not one of them. For sure. Yep. Um, although I don't know. Little, there's plenty of groundbreaking and interesting artistic movies in the 90s, and that Little Women one is probably not among them. Uh, no, that's probably about a, as middle of the road as you can get at that time. So we're probably just dealing with some different relative middles of different roads. Just dealing with some public domain intellectual <laughs> property. Uh, that's how we like it. Good and cheap. Well said, Amy. Um, you really understand the markets. I'm ho- I mean hopefully little women will kind of like hold in the conversation as we get into 2020. Do you think we have do you think it has any awards potential at all? Because fuck the Golden Globes. You think it has any other? I think it'll definitely get nominated for adapted screenplay. At that minimum. is a really that's a really good call. That does seem right. And maybe Greta Gerwig will get nominated for best director. I don't know. Like are they doing 10 nominees again? I think at some point it's just a uh, just a formality that it might get a picture nod if it's like number nine or something 
I think it would be nine or ten, maybe. And if they only do like six to eight nominees this year, though, I would I could see it being left off. I'd be annoyed about it because I think it's great. Yeah, um, it's a very deserving of editing, score, and adapted screenplay. And uh, I mean, Florence Pugh is not going to get nominated for best supporting actress, but she is truly fucking tremendous. It's it. going to be something annoying, like. Uh, Laura Dern getting nominated for Best Supporting Actor for what is like a fine but unremarkable role. Oh, she's got the marriage story locked down. That won't happen. You'll be Odin. You think she's got it? What if she gets nominated for both? Does that ever happen? It has happened. Um, Holly Hunter, the year in that year with the firm and the piano. Oh, right. Although that's those are were those different categories. Um, anyway. Uh, I want to leave with the best, the really good, the best use of Odenkirk, who is like, it's shocking when he shows up. You're like, that Bob fucking Odenkirk? What is happening here? But he does exude a kind of like kindness and funny dad energy that carries over into some great rapport with Laura Dern, where uh, Professor Bear's like, I'm going west, where they're less particular about immigrants. And he goes, huh, maybe perhaps I should go west. And she goes, well, you're not an immigrant, so perhaps you should stay here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the thing, too, because the father's clearly like an absentee father. Right. You know, like at one time he's at war, but then, you know, in the first track he's in war. But in the second track, he's he's very much just not there, but there. Yeah. With like the two sicknesses of Beth. Uh, they're like, oh, if he were only back from war, things would be so much easier. And then the second one, it's like, I guess we have a bad dad. <laughs> Another thing that the Gerwig structure solves. It's great. Yep. Because that yeah, the Little Women definitely has a absentee father vibe to it. It's true. Um, all right, this movie is great. Uh, happy 2020 to you, man. We'll uh, we'll have some more episodes coming down the pipe soon, and uh, you know, don't get scarlet fever. Celebrate your family. What are the other lessons here? Chase your dreams, and if your dream is an economic proposition, I can't judge you. 